pray together. Our gracious God and Father, we rejoice together in the blessings of your presence with us, the power of your Holy Spirit, the privilege of freedom to study and to obey your Word, and most of all, for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and for his impoverishment on the cross for our riches and for those riches of spiritual blessing which he has poured out upon us in his grace and into us through his Holy Spirit. We pray that this evening, in all his grace and glory, he may walk to us off the pages of Scripture into our lives, into the recesses of our needs, and together we may have our minds focused upon Christ and hear Christ alone. So send down upon us, we pray, the cloud of the presence of your Shekinah glory. Wrap us in your Holy Spirit and enable us, we pray, to hear Jesus and to see Jesus only. And this we pray for his great name's sake. Amen. Please be seated. Now we turn again this evening in our studies in Romans to Romans chapter 3 and this great passage that we began to study last Sunday evening from verse 21 through to verse 26. Romans chapter 3 and reading from verse 21 through to verse 26. Let us read the Word of God. But now, says Paul, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Many of us in church this evening, perhaps most of us, are familiar with the great slogans that describe the rediscovery of the Christian gospel in the 16th century at the time of the Reformation, that salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone, and through grace alone, and therefore to the glory of God alone. Those words in that forum probably don't come immediately from the Reformation, but they are a wonderful summary of the kernel and heart of the Christian gospel. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and it is not only in our praises but in our lives ultimately to the glory of God alone. And those words really are a wonderful summary 
of this great central section of Romans chapter 3 and these words in verses 21 through 26, on which, as I said last Sunday evening, we would camp together in these uh, now cold winter months into which we've come, we would camp together on these verses for three weeks so that we could grasp the riches of Paul's teaching about what salvation by faith is, and now this evening, what salvation in Christ alone is. It's always with Paul worth taking a look at his conclusions in school, we call that cheating when we go to the back of the book to find out what the answer is. But when you're studying the Apostle Paul, it's not cheating. It leads to understanding. And he tells us where he is going in this paragraph in verse 26. God being just and the justifier of the person who believes in Jesus. This is, he says, the glory of the gospel, that God is just and at the same time justifies those who believe in the Lord Jesus. Now, if you had been tracking with Paul from chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20, that statement might cause you great perplexity, because Paul's whole burden is to demonstrate to us that none of us is righteous before God, and therefore none of us in and of him or herself can possibly be justified before God. Indeed, you remember those words that he had used in chapter 3, verse 10, there is none righteous. We might even re-express that, there is none justified, no not even one. So, how can it be? How can it be that this great problem of the universe, that in and of ourselves we cannot stand before God and be justified, we have no resources in ourselves by which He might justify us, we are, as Paul has been arguing, judged and condemned by God, how can the Apostle Paul now turn round and say, God can be righteous, and at the same time, the justifier of the person who believes in Jesus? And of course, it's those last two words that are the clue to everything that the Apostle is teaching us here. We can be justified, he says, because of Jesus. And you notice how he has brought us there in the preceding verses. In verse 22, he underlines for us that the righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ. In verse 24, we are justified through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. We are justified as those, verse 26, who have faith in Jesus. So, here, as I say, we've come to the very epicenter of the gospel. This is the heart and soul of the Christian gospel. And in order to describe the privileges that come to us in Jesus Christ, you would have noticed as 
Joseph has already hinted to us this evening that the Apostle Paul uses three of the biggest words in the Bible, not only in the sense that they are long words, but they are hugely important words. We might even dare to say, if you really want to develop a rich understanding of the gospel, then here are three words that you need to try to understand, try to sense their significance, and see the way in which they open the door for you into all that Jesus Christ has done for us in His grace. And the three words, of course, are from verse 24, justification, from verse 24, redemption, and from verse 25, propitiation. Justification, says the Apostle Paul, is the effect of Christ's work, and He works from the effect through the means to the ultimate cause of our justification in these words. We are justified through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forward to be a propitiation for our sins. Or to reverse Paul's order so that we can grasp the foundation and the powerful logic of his thought, the Apostle Paul is saying, it is first of all because Christ is a propitiation for our sins, that in Jesus Christ we experience redemption from sin, and by faith in Jesus Christ we come to be justified from all of our sins. And so I want us to try and and think about it that way, to think about the powerful inner logic of the gospel in order that we may appreciate at the end of the day the wonderful experience of being a Christian believer and being able to say, I have been justified by faith in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you don't need to be a rocket scientist or a a literary expert to recognize that those three words take us to three different worlds, really. Propitiation takes us into the world of the temple and sacrifice. Redemption takes us into the world of the slave market and deliverance. And justification takes us into the world of the law court and being acquitted from a crime with which we have been charged. So, let's try and Let's try and think a little briefly this evening as we're able about these three great words. Salvation is ours if we are Christian believers, first of all, because of the propitiation that is found in Jesus Christ. And as I say here, this is language that comes from the world of the temple. Look at what the apostle says here in verse 25, God put forward Christ Jesus as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Now, it's interesting that the word the Apostle Paul uses here, it's used on one other occasion in the New Testament, in the Epistle to the Hebrews, where it's translated as the mercy seat. 
And it's a word that in Paul's Old Testament, he apparently, at least with some regularity, used a Greek translation of the Old Testament. In Paul's Old Testament, it was a word that characteristically described that lid that was on the Ark of the Covenant. The high priest would go into the most holy place once a year and and sprinkle around that lid on the Ark of the Covenant the sacrificial blood that had been shed for the forgiveness of the people's sins. I suppose it was, we might think, it was the one place in the universe where the people of God believed that God might be gracious to them and forgive their sins. And so, it's, a, it's language from the temple that the Apostle Paul is drawing into service in order to express to us what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. On the cross, Jesus Christ has made propitiation for our sins. The cross, we might say, has become the mercy seat on which the Lord Jesus Christ has shed His precious blood in order that there might be propitiation. Now, that begs the million-dollar question, doesn't it? What on earth does propitiation mean? It's not a word that we, we use a very great deal, but uh, many of us will occasionally use it. Somebody is antagonistic towards us. Somebody is angry with us, and we say, I knew I needed to do something in order to propitiate his anger. I needed to do something about the cause of his anger, his righteous anger against me. And that's the picture that the Apostle Paul is using. He's saying that what Jesus Christ did on the cross was to propitiate God so that His anger against us might, as it were, be directed towards His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, so that in the shedding of His blood, our Lord Jesus Christ would bear all the righteous judgment and wrath of God against our sins. Now, you know, that's not very popular teaching today, certainly in the world. And alas, it's become very unpopular teaching in the Christian church over the last couple of hundred years. The idea that Jesus Christ would propitiate an angry God, the idea that God would be a God of wrath and judgment, Away with the Apostle Paul, people might say, give me Jesus. Or do you want that Jesus of whom John's gospel tells us it is true that those who do not believe in the Son remain under the wrath of God? You see, the problem is not with the teaching of the Apostle Paul. The really offensive thing that the natural man finds, and often, alas, the religious man as well, the really offensive thing is that God would dare to be angry with me. 
at the end of the day, what have I ever done to offend him? And the truth of the answer is, because you have done nothing with zeal to glorify him, every single thing you have done in your life has actually been an offense to him. And the wonder of the gospel is that here am I, as we were singing earlier on this evening, I see myself as nothing more than a worm who deserves to be crushed underfoot by God because of my sin and my waywardness, and not least in the period since the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, because my God has sent His only Son to be my Savior, and I have lived indifferently to Him, and despised Him, and demeaned Him. It's amazing to me that some men who regularly have to propitiate their wives with gifts think it a strange thing that God should be wrathful against them, making God in their own image and demeaning His Son as they do. No, says the Apostle Paul, here is the glory of the gospel. Yes, it is. There is something profoundly offensive about this. But what is offensive about it is that God should love me as much as this. That's what I should hardly be able to bear, you see, that He should send His Son to give His Son for me, and that His Son should become the one in whom propitiation is made for my sin. And as Paul says elsewhere in Galatians 3, 13, that He should be the one who on the cross should become accursed of God in order that the blessing of God might come to me. And that makes me want to be with respect to Jesus, you see, as as an Old Testament believer might have wanted to become with respect to the animal that would be sacrificed in his place, and its blood then, as it were, a pictorial offering to God, asking that God would be gracious to them. I want to place my hands upon the head of the Lord Jesus and say to the Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, I can hardly believe I have the audacity to do this, but I'm placing my hands on you because God has said my sins may be transferred to you in order that God's righteousness might be transferred to me. Yes, indeed, there is something offensive about the thought that Jesus should die on the cross for our sins, but what it reveals to us is how desperately offensive our sins really are and how infinitely gracious our Heavenly Father is that in concert with His Son, in amazing concert with His Son, the Father and the Son have said, let us solve their problem." They are fast bound in sin and nature's night. They are under the judgment of the law. They have no resources in themselves to justify themselves. Let us do it for them. But my son, it will cost you the agony of the cross 
the sense of desertion from my loving face turned away from you. What an amazing thing it is to be able to sing, died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? And so propitiation through the sacrifice of Christ gives us such a glorious sense of how infinitely gracious God has been to us in the gift of His Son in giving us peace with God. You know, people go throughout the world seeking peace. I wonder what the multiplication figure is through the 20th into the 21st century of people who need to go to therapists to find peace. But here is the glory of the gospel. I gaze upon His blood, and I have peace with God. So there is propitiation in Jesus Christ. And that propitiation then becomes the ground for, for something that gloriously accompanies it. Says the Apostle Paul, because of the propitiation that there is in Christ, there is also redemption through His blood. Now, redemption takes us from the world of the temple and the priest and worship to the world of the slave market, or perhaps in days of the Old Testament's understanding of the great event of redemption to the slavery and bondage of God's people in the days of Egypt when God redeemed them with an outstretched hand from the land of Egypt. You remember how Jesus puts it, whoever commits sin becomes a slave of sin. And what Paul wants you and me to understand is that there is not only in the gospel a propitiation of God's wrath so that I may know that I am at peace with God, but there is a redeeming power in Jesus Christ to set me free from the bondage of sin. Or to put it very simply, the Lord Jesus Christ has come down into the slave market of our existence in order at the payment of the price of His own self to redeem us, to rescue us, to deliver us, to set us free from the bondage of sin. I wonder if you know those marvelous words in which Charles Wesley expressed this in a hymn that he seemed to have begun to write just a couple of days after his conversion. Wesley wrote in his journal, at midnight I gave myself to Jesus Christ, assured that I was safe whether sleeping or waking. I had the continual experience of His power to overcome temptation and I confessed with joy and surprise that He was able to do far more exceedingly abundantly for me above what I could ask or think. And within a couple of days, He'd begun to write that great hymn, And Can It Be That I Should Gain an Interest in the Savior's Blood? Here is how He described His experience. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, 
Now, my dear friends, this is a clergyman of the Church of England. This is not some near-do-well that has been dragged out of the gutter. This was one of the most morally impeccable, outwardly righteous men in all England, who had belonged to a holy club when he was a teenage student in Oxford, who had visited with condemned prisoners in order to show mercy to them, who had lived a life of vigorous, rigorous, outward righteousness, but had no peace with God, no confidence of salvation. Long his imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. Now, that's it. My heart was free. And this is the glorious consequence of what Jesus Christ has done for us in coming to be our Redeemer, coming into the world as we know from the Scriptures as one who would become himself the suffering slave, and on the cross would indeed himself be fast bound to the cross by the sin that was laid upon him. And under the judgment of God by nature's night that fell upon him, this is, this is the price that sets me free. And you see, if you're a Christian believer, this is one of the great things you need to understand. There's not only freedom, says the Apostle Paul, from a bad conscience to give you peace with God. There's not only that, but there's deliverance from your bondage in sin. And as we've said on one or two occasions since the letter to the Romans is like a great symphony where Paul throws out some motifs early on and then comes back and picks them up, we will see him speaking about this at great length, the privilege of being a Christian believer, and even when you struggle with the presence of sin, knowing that sin no longer reigns over you and you've been set free to live for and to love the Lord Jesus Christ. So, there is propitiation in Christ's blood. There is redemption through His sacrifice on the cross. And Paul says that what this leads to for those who trust in Jesus Christ is nothing less than justification. And you see, if you're interested in patterns and designs, it's really, it's interesting to see how all that He has been doing from chapter 1, verse 18 to chapter 3, verse 20, is dragging us, kicking and screaming to stand before the judgment seat of God and hear these words pronounced, no, not one, every mouth shut, the whole world held guilty before God. And just as He has said those words, as it were, with His other hand, He's been bringing along the gospel and saying there is in Jesus Christ a propitiation that can bring us peace with God. In Jesus Christ, there is a redemption that can set us free. And in Jesus Christ, there is a righteousness that can bring us justification. And so, He moves so swiftly 
from the temple to the slave market, and now to the law court to deal with our condemnation and the judgment of God against our sin and the recognition to which He's brought us that we have nothing to plead, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to Thy cross I cling. I hope if I'm not comatosed in my dying hour, those words will be coming out of my lips. Nothing in my hand I bring, Lord. I don't bring to You anything in my Christian life on the basis of which you might count me as righteous. All those sermon outlines that are somewhere stuck away in my computer, none of them is going to save me. Well, you knew that. I will not be saved because I'm an ordained minister of the gospel. I'll not be saved because I'm a Presbyterian. I'll not be saved because I'm a preacher. I'll not be saved because I've tried by God's grace to live for His glory. I'll be justified only because of what Jesus Christ has done for me on the cross. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to Thy cross I cling. Naked come to Thee for dress, helpless look to Thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. I was with a group of ministers yesterday in another major city in the United States. Uh, there were probably about 30 of them. They were all in the same church, and I don't think there were any, very many of them who were over 30. And one of them, who was the minister of music, said, if you're on a deserted island, which five hymns are you going to sing? Well, I don't care if I'm on a deserted island or in the middle of the Super Bowl this is one hymn I want to sing to the end of my days. It's nothing in me, Lord. It's only because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now, you don't think, do you, there's anything in you that would cause God to justify you? You're not so foolish as to think when God says to you, why should I let you into my heaven? You're not going to be foolish enough to say, because I've been as good as everybody else. That'll give you no confidence on that day. You're not going to be able to appeal to your mum and dad and say, I had the most wonderful mum and dad in the world. The only thing to which you're going to be able to appeal is that you have been justified through Jesus Christ, and He has clothed you with His righteousness. Do you remember that wonderful picture of this in Zechariah chapter 3 in the Old Testament Scriptures, where the priest appears before the judgment seat of God, and his garments are filthy, and Satan is standing there saying, look at him. How can he possibly stand in your holy and majestic presence? And, and God says, then let us take these filthy garments off and let us clothe him with new garments. Are you wearing new garments tonight, my friend, clothed in his righteousness divine? 
righteous with the very righteousness that Jesus Christ has provided because He has borne God's judgment against your sin and has given to you the righteousness of His living and His dying. That's what enables you to sing, bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown of Christ my own. Now, two things as we close. Number one, do you see that what Jesus Christ has done for you, if you are His, has a a wonderful all-sufficiency about it? Your problem and mine is not just that we are under the wrath of God. Your problem and mine is not just that we are by nature in bondage to sin, Your problem and mine is not just that we have nothing to plead before the judgment seat of God. Your problem and mine is all three put together. And the marvel of the gospel is that as God has looked upon me in my multifaceted need and in all the dimensions of my sinfulness, He has provided in Jesus Christ a Savior who is all-sufficient for all of my needs, so that, as the Scriptures say, He is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through Him. And the other thing that we're bound to notice from these verses in the Apostle Paul is that all of this is to be found in Jesus Christ. And oh, my dear friends, just as it is my native tendency to look to myself, to think that there might be something in me for which cause God might count me righteous, and I discover nothing, there remains even in Christian believers a native tendency, even while knowing that everything we need is found in Jesus Christ, to look somewhere else unto Jesus Christ, to take our eyes off Jesus Christ, and to begin to sink into the waters, and to be unable to walk. Where are you looking tonight? Where are you seeking the resources that will give you a life that is righteous before God set free from the guilt of sin, and set free from that awful, nagging reign of sin over your life. Well, there's only one place to look. It's all in Jesus Christ. So, look nowhere else. Or if you have never looked to Jesus Christ, Begin to look now and discover in Christ alone all that you need for life and salvation, because He alone can supply it. Heavenly Father, thank You for our Lord Jesus and for the way in which Your Word makes Him great in our sight, for the manner in which it warms our hearts to trust Him and to love Him. Oh, help us, we pray, to think of this gospel as a great and glorious gospel 
that is absolutely adequate for every single one of every single one of our needs. And lift up our eyes tonight that we may cease to look to ourselves or even to one another, and that we may look and see only Jesus and discover your riches in Christ alone. And this we pray for His great name's sake and for our eternal blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.